Welcome to the weekly on WOBC Oberlin 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. I'm Jamie Yu, and with me is Owen Anderson, and we are the news directors for WOBC this academic year. We hope you are all doing well. For today's show, we have Zoe Kuzbari, a senior staff writer, and Zoe Martin Del Campo, a sports section editor from the Oberlin Review. Later on, we will be speaking with writer Leela Miller about her arts article. Right now, we're looking forward to talking to Zoe K and Zoe M about the very exciting news that spring sports are returning. So, um, thank you both so much for for joining me today. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask was, uh, could you briefly introduce yourselves? Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Zoe. I'm Martine Del Campo, and I use she or hers. I'm a third year, and I'm the sports editor of the Oberlin Review. Um, hi, my name is Zoe Kuzbari, she, her pronouns. I'm also a third year, um, and I am a sports writer. So um, with spring sports especially returning, did this pitch arrive unexpectedly for you, and how did you prepare to tackle it? Um, I had actually heard from Natalie. Um, I'm on the Student Athletic Advisory Committee as well, and so that was something that she had been talking with admin about, um, a couple weeks ago. So when we met early or mid-March um, for SAC, uh, she had said that she had kind of pitched the idea um, to admin to start getting Oberlin involved in sports. But of course, you know, they needed to figure out protocols. They needed to figure out scheduling, how it would work. Um, so she had kind of let us know that it was in the works, but nothing was official um, until a couple weeks ago. So when, when it did become official, was that sudden and like you, you felt like you had to just suddenly write a story about it? Um, I think it felt sudden in the sense I was like, oh, okay, like now this is going to be like going into the works because, you know, everything was hypothetical, much like many of the college's plans right now, simply because, you know, everything's always changing. Um, so seeing the announcement on GoYo was like, okay, great. Um, and then um, because, like, both of us are on teams, we also got a little bit of, like, a little bit more headway of knowing, like, okay, we know that some of our other teammates are, like, who are in different teams are planning to play. So now, um, yeah, so we had the information, I would say, a little bit earlier. Um, but we knew immediately that this was going to be a story that we would have to cover, um, especially considering the fact that both of us had written all the previous pieces where it was like, oh, this season is canceled, this season is canceled, this season is suspended. Um, so we felt like it was important that we also both worked on this one together. Um, and what was it like, though, to, to get the news initially? Like, was that exciting? Yeah, you know, I feel like, like Zoe said, we had written all the previous articles about how seasons had been canceled. Um, This was kind of like, I don't know, the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, like we're finally getting to the end of this thing and we can sort of return to life normally um, before the pandemic. So, yeah, I think it was really exciting. I have a lot of friends who are seniors on spring sports teams that were devastated that they had their last two seasons canceled. And so this came as a nice surprise for them. And, you know, I'm super happy that they get a couple more opportunities to play um, their sport before they graduate and they might not ever play again. So I think it was super exciting. And in your article, you spoke with several people like across administration and the athletics department. So did any parts of the interviews uh, stick out to you or that you liked in particular? Um, I think just, 
you know, the excitement that came through with all the interviews. Um, we interviewed um, the softball coach and one of the senior players and kind of getting to hear you know, this really amazing news that there will be a season. Um, I think especially putting in the context of seniors haven't played since they were sophomores, um, which kind of is like, oh my gosh, like it's been that long. Um, So knowing as like Zoe um, previously said, you know, seniors are now going to be able to finish up their collegiate career. So that was really exciting. And so just kind of like getting to hear more or getting to like talk to people in a more positive aspect was really nice. I definitely agree because I, f- I feel like now that students are getting vaccinated and there's more talk about um, uh, like social dis- distancing measures being coming more relaxed on campus, it really does just it's it's very revitalizing to see news like this for sure and see like, oh, like, you know, it's been such a long time, but maybe there is a sign that things can can go back to the way they were. Oh, yes. And um, were there any parts of your interviews that didn't make it into the article but still resonate with you? Um, Natalie actually just responded to a couple of my questions today, um, but I had asked her what it felt like to know that she had given these seniors an opportunity to play, um, one last time, um, and, you know, I, her response, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was more or less like, you know, this was everything that she hoped she could give them, um, going out, and so I think, she worked really hard um, to be able to provide this opportunity for seniors. Um, and so that didn't make it in the article. But, you know, I think just giving props to Natalie for pushing so hard and um, trying so hard to make sure that uh, seniors and I mean, that seniors get their final debut, but also that freshmen get their first opportunity to play in college. Um, so, you know, I think that didn't make it in. But that's huge that she worked so hard for the teams to get these opportunities this year. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you bringing that up because I definitely think that deserves recognition. I think a lot of the behind the scenes work, just a lot of people just don't know how much effort really goes into all that, um, especially navigating social distancing policies and requirements and making sure that everyone is safe first of all. Yeah, I think the hardest part also is like understanding that the colleges we play against have not been as strict with their COVID protocols, um, you know. There was a petition that came out earlier this year that a lot of student athletes had signed because they really wanted a season. But the issue wasn't necessarily that Oberlin wasn't being COVID safe. It was that the schools that we play against were being COVID safe. Um, and, you know, back in November, I got to speak with some of the other girls that I play volleyball against um, at Allegheny, at Wittenberg, um, at DePauw, and they all had terrible outbreaks, like team outbreaks, where each team had to go into quarantine because they had numbers that Oberlin like never even saw. Um, so, you know, keeping that in mind that it never really had anything to do with Oberlin being unsafe. It always had to do with where we were going and the people we were playing against. Right. And sports are such a tense issue too, because of all of the potential for spread and, and, and traveling. So I definitely imagine how that got must have been severely interrupted and everything. And I did want to actually ask about that because um so ek you you are on the women's volleyball team and you mentioned earlier that you were part of the athletic committee so i wanted to ask you um how your perspective as a student athlete specifically might have affected your reaction to the, to the news of spring sports returning because I'm, I'm not sure is is volleyball a spring sport no we're a fall sport um 
Yeah, so we had our season canceled last fall, um, but there is hope for a fall 2021 season. So, you know, seeing the news that spring could happen also gave me hope for my season and for Zoe. um, She's on the field hockey team for Zoe season next year as well. So. Mm -hmm. And um, Zoe M, did you want to add anything about that? Yeah, no, I think Zoe, um, Zoe Cake, um, you know, perfectly summed it up. Um, yeah, I think this whole year has definitely been just a waiting game. Um, and I think as a whole, all student athletes have kind of come to terms with the idea of, you know, like this year would, would inherently look different from any other year that we've ever had. Um, and, you know, we're just going to make the most of it. And I think it just goes to show like the resilience within, you know, the Oberlin community as a whole, but specifically within the athletic community and just making the best out of any situation and, you know, having fun with it and just being there um, for our teams. And I, I, I'd like to pivot a bit now and talk more about the review in general. Um, so starting with, um, Zoe K, you mentioned that you began writing for the review back in February, but then we all had to go remote. So how has it been essentially starting out at a position at the review like during a pandemic? Um, well, there's definitely some things that I'm sad that I can't take part to, uh, that I can't be a part of um, that Zoe had mentioned to me when we were on campus. Um so I am really itching to like get into the office and spend late nights with Zoe next year um, and hanging out with the team. But it's been it's been pretty good. You know, I, I love writing. I um, love working with Zoe and Khalid um, and I love writing about sports. And so it's been really great um, this year, especially I've gotten to write a lot about professional um, women athletes. Um, and that's been really inspiring. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been a strange experience, but a really good one so far. And I know that it'll only get better when I get back to school. I definitely agree. Cause part of why I'm working on the weekly this semester is because I'm remote and I can't actually take on a paid position at the review. So I very, I've told this to everybody in basically every episode, but I miss the review office so much and I miss the team and I even miss the late nights when we were in the office until basically like almost one in the morning doing editing. Um, so I'm definitely looking forward to, to returning and getting to see all of you in yeah. person again. I'm actually on a gap year right now, so I'm not getting paid to write for the review. Um, or I haven't been getting paid to write for the review since January. I was a paid position from like September until... December. And then I took a personal leave of absence um, for the semester. So everything that I've written since then has been, I guess, like volunteer. But it doesn't really, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I still like to write. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And um, Zoe M., so you were a contributing sports editor pre-pandemic, but for you, like, how has editing for the section changed um, as a full-time editor during the pandemic? Yeah, well, you know, Khalid and I essentially, um, you know, we were both contributing editors when we joined on to the review. And, you know, we were, we also worked with Jane Agler and Alexis. So they really kind of like, you know, showed us the ropes and how to do everything. So Khalid and I felt really prepared. Um, but then when obviously when everything went remote, it was kind of like, oh, wow, like, you know, this was very different than from what we expected. But what was really nice is the fact that, you know, 
our EICs are so wonderful and have just created such a supportive environment, um, especially during a year in a pandemic. I can't imagine anyone else who could have, you know, led this change better, um, particularly in the sense of just like flexibility, being there, always checking in with the writers and the section editors has been really great. Um, so yeah, it's been different, but it's been a great experience. And, you know, working with Khalid and Zoe every week is one of the highlights um, of my day, so I enjoy it so much, and I'm looking forward to next year when, or in the fall, when we get back into the office as well. Um, and I, I did want to ask about just the the section itself. Um, has it been difficult to get enough content for the section when so many events have been remote and seasons have been canceled? You know, I think you know initially when the three of us were going into. Um, you know, me, Zoe, and Khalid were going into this year, you know, we're like, oh no, like, it's going to be difficult to generate content, but we honestly haven't run into that much of an issue. I think if anything, it's given us more room to be more creative and, you know, write about more ideas of like sports and culture. So we've been able to cover more like nationwide events um, in the athletic community and topics of social justice and how it relates to sports. And so I think that if it was a normal year uh, where we were all on campus, I don't necessarily know we would have been able to do that um, to the same extent that we were able to this year. Mm -hmm. And do you think you could go into like more specific examples of how you kind of worked around remote coverage? Yeah, well, I think, Zoe, if you want to talk about some of the articles you did, um, I don't know, I think like the AAPI one in particular. Yeah, I wrote an article a couple weeks ago um, about the Asian American and Pacific Islander experience as an athlete. Um, I wrote a couple of articles about women in football um, and how 2020 was really a breakthrough year and 2021 um, with the Super Bowl was a breakthrough year for women in football. Um, I wrote about the WNBA and their activism with the BLM movement. Um you know, so all articles that I think if there was a season potentially wouldn't have happened because I needed to cover um, Oberlin sports teams. Um, but because there weren't that many or there wasn't any competition, really, um, I got to write about other things, which was great. Mm-hmm. I read your AAPI article. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Um, so would you say like being able to expand a bit more kind of encouraged to be more creative with your writing yeah I would yeah definitely so yeah um I guess moving forward like now that spring sports are returning uh what are you most excited about content wise I think just overall being able to you know not necessarily go to games um because there are no spectators allowed but already um like this past weekend there was a track meet and the athletes that um, were there competing, they were close to breaking like school records. And this was their first meet in over a year. And so just kind of getting to see um, the way that athletes, especially those who are seniors, are going to be putting their best foot forward and competing in their last collegiate games. I'm just really excited to see how it goes. I'm excited to report on it. Um, And yeah, um, in addition to that, Khalid and I were able to do a column and kind of other more creative pieces. So I'm excited to continue that as well. That's exciting that you're continuing it because I'm really enjoying uh, Zoe and Khalid. (laughs) Yeah, um, I guess I'm most excited to cover, I guess I'm just excited to cover the games and write about my friends. Um, You know, my roommate is on the tennis team. 
And this was her first, I was texting her the other day and she was like, you know, I lost, but this was the first competition I've had in a year and a half, essentially. So, you know, I'm just so happy for her. I watched um, a little bit of the baseball live stream and they were crushing um, the school that they were playing in the first game. I think they won like 14-4. Um, you know, so I'm just really excited to write about my friend's accomplishments um, the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. That's super sweet. I really like that. Um, so before I end off here, I just wanted to ask if either of you had anything else you'd like to add. <laughs> Not much, I guess. Just everyone should keep an eye out for all the articles that we're going to write in the next couple of weeks about all the games that <laughs> Oberlin sports teams get to play. <laughs> yeah, go yo. <laughs> okay, I actually... You know, that reminded me, I was kind of curious as to um, what what kinds of articles you maybe were planning down the line. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we always kind of have a mix between like national events and kind of like Oberlin events, you know, considering now that we have games to write about. Um, I'm sure that more of our articles will lean more towards that. But even so, like this week, um, we have an article about the recent... Um, you know, legislation that's been put forth against trans athletes and how that's impacting the trans community um, in a terrible way. Um, So even though there are games back on, I think that particularly for all three of us, social justice is really important. um, And that's integrated into a way that we interact and view sports. So I think that's still going to be something that's still um, there, even with, um, you know, spring games. Uh, Zoe K, is there anything else you wanted to add? Um, yeah, I guess I'm really looking forward to maybe doing some more in the locker room segments. Um, I think that it could be really great to feature some of the seniors that we're not going to have next year um, to catch up with them. Um, and then also, I don't know if we want to do an in the locker room segment with some of the trans athletes. Um, I wrote one about River Schiff, a couple of months ago or weeks ago um um and I and they gave me like crazy insight into everything that was happening um with the trans athletes world um so you know just looking forward to giving a platform to people who need it right now Mm -hmm. yeah that's a great note to end on now we would like to turn to Leela Miller and her article about the production fires in the mirror Lila's article was originally published in the Oberlin Review Arts section on April 2nd, 2021. So, Lila, can you introduce yourself, please? Um, sure. Uh, I'm Lila Miller. I'm an Oberlin College first year, um, and I just wrote my first Oberlin Review article about the production of Fires in the Mirror. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we wanted to start by asking you, um, what drew you to writing about this production? Well, honestly, um, I was writing this piece for Jan Cooper's um, Journalism Basics class. This was kind of, uh, it was an assignment um, where we were asked to write a piece for the review. We'd been writing pieces of journalism that hadn't really gone anywhere before, which was great practice, but this was kind of a new, I don't know, adventure into writing something that was actually going to be seen and read by other people. Um, So I just signed up for the art section's um, like pitch email 
list and that was one of the three that they offered and they said this would be a great option for um, people who are writing their first article because we'll be able to set you up with sources and that kind of thing um, as like a jumping off point. So I chose it from that list. But it was also something I was really excited about. Um, I'm just interested in arts journalism and getting to talk to students about things that they've been working on, um, creative projects. I, that was something really exciting to me and something that I probably wouldn't have gotten the chance to do if it weren't for the fact that I was writing this piece. Mm -hmm. And in this journalism class, uh, were there multiple student productions that you could have picked from? Um, as far as I remember, the three pitches in the email were um, covering fires in the mirror. Then there was another one about an Oberlin alums film, um, documentary film that was being shown at a film festival. And then there was another that was covering um, like student musical performances just out and about on campus or like in Tappan Square. So no other theatrical productions, but it was kind of a range of arts-related stories. So the review was the only publication that was pitched in this journalism class? Um, yes, we were all asked to write a piece for the review. I think mainly because, as far as I know, they're the student publication that has the strictest kind of guidelines for news writing, and that's what we've been learning about. Um, so I, Jan really wanted all of us to do a news story where we had to kind of follow the protocol of getting a certain number of sources, um, just really following the journalistic method, basically. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Lila, when you got the pitch, were you familiar with the play beforehand? Um, or was that the only information that you had about fires in the mirror going into this article? That was really the only information that I had going in. I wasn't familiar with the play beforehand, but I feel like that's one of the skills of a journalist is educating yourself about something given a short time frame and really getting interested in it genuinely. Um, and that's exactly what I did. I researched a lot about Anna Devere Smith learned that she actually spoke at Oberlin, I think in 2012, um, and read up a lot on verbatim theater, documentary style theater, which is what this play was, um, you know, taking uh, the words of real people and turning them into a theatrical production. I thought that was super interesting. Um, yeah, so I didn't know anything about it going in, but then I read up a lot once I got the pitch. Awesome. So while you were, um, you interviewed several people for this article, and we were wondering, um, did any parts of your interviews with anyone stick out to you or that you liked in particular? Um, yes. I would say my interview with um, Vera, who is one of the actors in the production was really wonderful. That was my first interview, so it was kind of my jumping off point um, for getting information that would inform my later interviews. Um, and they just had so many interesting things to say about 
the timeliness of the production, also just the experience of of portraying real people and really feeling a sense of responsibility to do them justice and to not turn them into caricatures of any kind. Vera talked a lot about how Anna Devere Smith interviewed these people and she had actually gotten to observe them, to observe their mannerisms, their pattern of speech, all of those things. Um, But as actors in this production, they were just working with the script that Anna Devere Smith had written. Um, They didn't have the experience of actually interacting with these people in real life. So it was kind of trying to be as authentic to these people as as possible without actually knowing them. Um, And then CD, who I also interviewed, talked about trying to do that by watching any kind of interviews that they could find about, um, like with these people from real life, um, some of which were, you know, musicians or activists um, who there is record of online. So like finding any kind of evidence um, of how that person kind of carries themselves. Um, CD talked about that being used as a tool to like inform how they played these people. Right. And then were there also other parts of your conversations that um, just due to space didn't make it into the article? Yes. There's actually uh, something that came up in multiple of my interviews about the off-campus students who were part of the play, um, sophomores who are home right now. Um, kind of a funny anecdote about how in order to get them to kind of blend in with all the other members of the cast, they had to be like FedExed a green screen and then kind of set that up behind them um, and then just record themselves. And that was kind of the, that was the solution to, I don't know, preventing it, it like looking off or like making sure that they didn't look super out of place. They just kind of had to get shipped equipment. Um, And apparently director Jason Dorwart at first was like, this is not going to work. This is going to be super expensive or something's going to go wrong. Um, But it ended up being pretty cheap. And um, from what I saw, it looked great in the end. Um, Professor Dorwart also talked about this idea of even if the play had been in person, he wanted to have kind of like projected backgrounds, kind of artificial backgrounds rather than a traditional set um, because we've spent so much time on Zoom and he had this idea of like, we're kind of used to, I don't know, these artificial Zoom backgrounds, like that is like normal for us now. He kind of wanted to like tap into that idea So the fact that it was online and they used green screens instead of sets um, was kind of perfect for like emulating the feeling of being on a Zoom. So I thought that was super interesting and it didn't make it into the article. I just wanted to go off of that more because I I also found that really interesting. Can you talk more, Leela, about how or can you explain more about how the play was produced? Sure. Yeah, I thought that was super interesting, too. Obviously, it's hard to navigate doing theater during COVID. Um, All of 
Oberlin's productions this year, they've kind of had to innovate um, in different ways. There's obviously there's audio play um, or like uh, like a single person show um, that's easier than like a large ensemble. Um, but it was interesting to talk to cast members because they expressed to me that like each of them had to come in individually. Um, it was just the cast member, um, the director, and then the production crew. Um, but there weren't any other cast members there with them. Um, and all of the rehearsals, as far as I know, were over Zoom. So they were really only in person for one session of recording their monologues. Um, basically they had one performance rather than typical production. They're able to kind of like go in and tweak things if things didn't go over well in their first performance or just kind of, I don't know, feel the energy of the audience and kind of adjust to that. Um, instead of that, there was just one recording. So they expressed to me that that was kind of difficult and foreign. Um, and also just not having co-stars I don't know if co-stars is the right word I guess it is um to like play off of or to interact with or to like build creative energy with it was just all the focus was on them so I think that was sort of difficult to navigate at first um but also the the structure of the play being a series of monologues made it perfect for doing in a COVID safe way um and I think as far as what I heard, it was a, a learning experience um, for cast and crew and for Professor Dorwart. Um, but it was definitely kind of a foreign experience for someone who's had a lot of experience with theater acting before. Mm -hmm. And I was going to add earlier that um, I remember reading in your article that the monologues were set up in a way so that the actors could be socially distanced, but I actually had no idea that some of the actors were remote the entire time. And um, I think it really shows that like the theater department specifically has come up with such interesting workarounds to the pandemic. Um, and I was going to mention the misanthrope because Owen was a assistant stage manager for that production um, last fall. And um, in a way, like the, the whole like film and digital aspect of the play almost made it seemed like a, a, a like a limited edition movie in a way. So um, I also read in the article that Professor Dorwart explained that a big theme of the production was empathy and setting aside your biases. And I was wondering um, what your thoughts were on that when you spoke with him and, and possibly when you reviewed the play. Yeah, I, I think that the, the title of the article mentioned um, encouraging empathy both in the actors and in the audience. Um, what I got from my conversation with Professor Dorwart was, yes, that the play was about showing just snippets of, of the experiences of all of these different people and kind of splicing them together in a way that highlighted sort of overlaps in their thinking or I think it, it, the play was meant to sort of highlight things that are universal, even 
um, between seemingly very different groups of people. Also for the actors in the play, even though it was no longer a, a one-woman show like it was originally written, um, like I mentioned in the article, each actor played, I think, four roles. Um, and each actor played a really wide range of roles. Uh, the article also mentioned that Professor Dorwart tried to cast people in roles that kind of went against type. So people were playing people of different ages, different ethnicities, different genders, um, different um, occupations, um, and they kind of had to... They didn't have to just get into their character once, they had to get into four very different characters um, and kind of switch between them in a way that I think must have been really interesting from the perspective of the actual cast members. Um, so I think just the fact that they had to play more than one, one person, that um, really requires empathy. And then obviously from the viewer having not one protagonist, but just many different people sharing their experiences, that is also going to inspire empathy from the viewers, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. With the research that you've done, can you give a bit more context for where this play is set in Crown Heights? Yes, definitely. Um, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the Crown Heights riot, but um, based on the research I've done, um, the play is set um, immediately following the Crown Heights riot in 1991 uh, in Brooklyn, which was a violent conflict that erupted between Black residents of the neighborhood and also Orthodox Jewish residents. Um, and what Anna Devere Smith did was she went in and she interviewed Black residents, Jewish residents, also people who weren't um, necessarily members of the community, um, but who kind of got involved in the conflict after it started. Um, and yeah, obviously that was 30 years ago now, <laughs> um, exactly 30 years. Um, but I still think it's relevant, even if it's not necessarily the same conflict that we're discussing, um, right now in 2021. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I think that kind of context is, is really important. And, um, even though it's been 30 years, it's kind of saddening to see how like these themes are still quite pervasive today. And I think they're still necessary. So you wrote this article before the play was released as, as more of a preview, and we were wondering if you got a chance to watch the play. Yes, I did. And what did you think of it? Um, I really enjoyed it. It was really interesting to have all the background that I had before watching it. I It was interesting to write sort of a preview piece, because at first I was like, how am I going to write this article about a play that I haven't seen yet and that's not even like finish being produced. Um, but I, I having that background about all of the effort that went into producing it, all of the sort of hiccups um, along the way that they 
overcame and also just knowing more about um, the social context of the play and knowing more about like the methods of the actors and the cast. Um, I mean, it was great as is, but having that made it an even better viewing experience, I think. That's great. Yeah. Um, I've, I remember, um, reading about previews of articles and I think really like they, they serve to just provide the reader with a lot of context that I think can enhance their, their viewing experience. So I, I really enjoyed writing them when I was a writer for the review. Um, and yeah, so this, this was your first article for the review. Um, so how, what was that process like? And, um, in the future, do you think you'd want to continue reporting for the arts section? Um, yes, definitely. Uh, this experience was, well, like I said, in my journalism basics class, we've been doing news journalism, interviewing people, learning about um, the basic structure of pieces of journalism gaining that skill set, but it wasn't until I'd written this article that I really, first of all, knew that I was writing for an audience. Second of all, had that same tight time constraint where I knew, okay, I've gotten this pitch. Now I have two days or so to go out, interview these people when I know for me, it's a big deal that I have it by a certain time that I've completed these interviews, but these are busy people and it's not a priority for them in the way it is for me. So I think learning that kind of persistence was good. Um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was pressure in a way that I hadn't experienced before, but it was also really rewarding. And I think I will be writing more for the review and for the art section in the future. Um, I just think that these are skills, uh, learning how to interview, learning how to be persistent, uh, learning how to educate yourself about a topic really quickly, learning how to kind of project confidence, even if you're not necessarily feeling it, um, and also just like writing efficiently and quickly. Those are all things that I really would like to improve. I'm generally someone who's pretty quiet, pretty introverted, likes to like just brew on things for a long time, um, likes to kind of just like, I don't know, fixate on like little nitpicky things in my writing. So this is a completely different way of approaching writing. Um, but I already feel like I've learned so much from the journalistic writing I've done so far. And I think that's just going to um, continue to be true. I'm going to keep learning more. And growing more. Thank you for sharing. I really like that answer. When you watched um, this play, Leela, can you talk about how it affected you? Not even just as a journalist, but as as a person. That's a good question that I'm going to have to think about for a second. Take your time. I think that this play dealt with some really heavy themes, um, and some difficult topics, but I think it did so um, very carefully. Um, I don't know, it, it did so in a way that didn't feel gratuitous, but it felt like 
it felt like it was bringing bringing these I don't know bringing these difficult topics up for an important reason it felt like a good starting point for conversations about um, racial issues a good starting point for um, just listening to varying perspectives on a topic um, I think that is what the cast and crew were intending. Um, I don't think that you're supposed to necessarily come away from watching it with any singular takeaway. Um, I think it was more meant, more meant as, like I said, like a starting point for conversation or meant to like spark discussion um, and to really like encourage you to listen to a variety of perspectives and yeah to consider different viewpoints i guess that's what i took away from it thanks for sharing um and our final question is do you have anything else you'd like to add <laughs> that's always the final question um i would say i would encourage everyone to watch the play um but at this point the window has closed but I would say go out. Um, I would encourage everyone to watch other theatrical productions um, or any kind of artistic performance. Um, just support artists that are still creating even in this weird COVID world um, with all of these restrictions. I think that's important. Um, also, I would encourage people to write for a student publication, um, get involved in journalism on campus. I think that even if it feels like something that doesn't come naturally to you, I think there's a lot to be learned from doing that kind of work. So I would say that you should do it. Great note to end on. Thanks. Okay. Well, thank you, Leela, so much for your time. Um, really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you both. Uh, it was really great talking to you, Leela. Thank you. And now we bring you two audio journalism projects from the WOBC News Workgroup. The first project was produced in the spring's 2021 semester by Finn Miller, class of 2024, on COVID-19 vaccine production. The following information was taken from NPR, the CDC website, the FDA website, and biospace.com. It has been a year since the outbreak of the COVID-19 global pandemic. The COVID-19 vaccine has now emerged as another preventative measure in our pandemic health kit. Vaccine centers have begun to pop up. Senior citizens and frontline workers have been getting their jabs. This short piece aims to demystify some misconceptions about the vaccine and provide you with all the information you need to feel safe about getting vaccinated. How does a vaccine work? A vaccine is simply training our immune system to recognize and fight off a potentially larger infection. In simple terms, a vaccine works by injecting a small, non-lethal, non-reproductive dosage of germs like bacteria or viruses into the body to stimulate an immune response. An antigen, or a fragment of a germ, will be introduced so that our immune system begins to create the necessary antibodies, or blood proteins that counteract antigens, to fight the infection. After this initial infection, copies of the antibodies will remain in our immune system. Should we be reinfected with the bacteria or virus, our body will produce copies of the effective antibody based on its experience fighting this particular antigen. 
This process is the same as if we were infected with the actual germ, however on a much reduced and controlled scale, and thus much safer. In the case of COVID, the COVID-19 mRNA vaccine gives instructions for our cells to make a harmless piece of what is called the spike protein. The spike protein is found on the surface of the virus that causes COVID-19. Our body uses mRNA to make a coronavirus protein that your immune system can recognize and respond to. Once our immune system recognizes that the protein doesn't belong there, it begins building an immune response and making antibodies. So how did these vaccines come into production? The efficacy of vaccines and the science behind them is put to the test under clinical trials. Initially, the vaccine is given to a small number of generally healthy people to assess its safety and to gain early information about how well the vaccine works to induce an immune response in people. If all goes well, phase two studies include more people with varying health statuses and from different demographic groups in randomized controlled studies. These studies provide additional safety information on common short-term side effects and risks and may provide initial information regarding the effectiveness of the vaccine. In phase three, the vaccine is generally administered to thousands of people in randomized controlled studies involving broad demographic groups. This phase provides additional information about the immune response in people who receive the vaccine compared to those who receive a control, such as a placebo. How come the vaccine was developed so quickly? Historically, a vaccine can take up to 10 years to be fully developed. During the pandemic, the first vaccines were being used in trials only 10 months after the initial outbreak. This doesn't mean that it's any less safe. Most of the vaccines produced boast 90 plus percent efficacy rates, which means that the vaccine has produced the desired effects in a laboratory setting. Given that the virus is so widespread, a great deal of time, energy, and money have been put toward the vaccination effort. Multiple vaccines have begun to be distributed in the United States thanks to the Emergency Use Authorization, or EUA for short, granted by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, commonly known as the FDA. An EUA is a mechanism to facilitate the availability and use of medical countermeasures during public health emergencies. For an EUA to be issued for a vaccine, the FDA must determine that the known and potential benefits outweigh the known and potential risks of the vaccine. This may seem like a low bar to cross, but an EUA requests for a COVID vaccine can only be submitted based on a final analysis of the phase three clinical trial efficacy. Part of the FDA's evaluation of an EUA request for a COVID-19 vaccine includes evaluation of the chemistry, manufacturing, and controls information for the vaccine. The FDA will make use of record reviews, site visits, and previous compliance history to assess compliance with current good manufacturing practices. What are the differences between the vaccines that are now available? Pfizer-BioNTech. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine was sent to the FDA for EUA on Friday, November 20th, gaining authorization on December 11th. It is an mRNA vaccine that consists of two doses taken 21 days apart. It has a 95% efficacy rate and requires storage at about negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit, which requires specialized freezers. Moderna. The Moderna vaccine was authorized by the FDA on December 19th. It, too, is an mRNA vaccine that comes in two doses, but Moderna's injections are taken 28 days apart, 
a gap of a week longer than the Pfizer vaccine. It has a 94% efficacy rate and is stable for 30 days at 36 to 46 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about the temperature of a standard refrigerator. The vaccine can be further stored for up to six months at negative four degrees Fahrenheit. Johnson & Johnson. Finally, Johnson & Johnson received authorization on February 27th. It is an adenovirus-based vaccine, which means it uses a double-stranded DNA rather than a single-stranded RNA. It requires only one dose and has an efficacy rate of up to 72%. This single dose can be kept in simple refrigerators for up to three months. The scientific community has worked long and hard to provide the population with safe and effective vaccines. Until the vaccine is offered to you, keep wearing masks, washing your hands, and staying socially distanced. This way, we can take care of ourselves, each other, and the wider community. The second project was produced in the spring semester of 2021 by Zach Gershon, class of 2024, on the evolution of the band The Police. One of my favorite bands growing up was English trio The Police. Lead singer, bassist, and primary songwriter Sting, guitarist Andy Summers, and drummer Stuart Copeland formed The Police in London in 1977. The band released five studio albums over the course of nine years. The Police established themselves as one of the most prominent bands of the British New Wave through their fusion of the English punk sound, similar to the Sex Pistols and The Clash, with reggae and ska, as well as their tendency to experiment sonically with each new album, for better or for worse. However, internal tensions between the band members led The Police to break up in 1986, although they briefly reunited in 2007 for one final world tour. What the band left behind after their split was an impressive legacy and a series of hits such as Roxanne, Every Breath You Take, and Message in a Bottle, to name a few. As someone who has grown up with this band and been a longtime avid listener, I decided that it might be a good idea to go back and listen to all five of the band's albums to see how much they evolved as a group and hear all their sonic change. Right off the bat, the band's debut album, Atlando's D'Amour, released in 1978, is markedly different from the new wave style that dominates the band's later albums. Atlando's is a purely punk album that highlights the simplistic nature of the band's trio arrangement and features many songs in which the band uses the stripped-down sound to their advantage, and it works. Most of the time. Like, this is an album that has some genuinely incredible songs on one side of the spectrum. The opener, Next to You, is a very energetic song that helps set the tone for this album, and the three singles released for the album, So Lonely, Roxanne, and Can't Stand Losing You, all feature the band mixing some of the late 70s English punk sound with a lot of reggae influence. And it is a sonic combination that works incredibly well, with Summers' clean, no effects guitar being the standout instrument for many of the singles, including a very intricate solo on So Lonely. Meanwhile, the contrast between the members who make up the rhythm section, Sting and Copeland, is highlighted more in the other two songs, especially Roxanne. On the other hand, there are some generally forgettable songs like the cheesy hole in my life, the cringy summer's pen spoken word piece Be My Girl Sally, and the so bad it's good born in the 50s. If I had to pick my least favorite song from this album, it would have to be Masoko Tenga, a song so repetitive and so boring and so skippable. By contrast, my favorite song on the album has to be So Lonely. Overall, three out of five. Solid start, but I know they can do better. And better they did. 1979's Regala de Blanc is a marked improvement, which featured the band going into a more post-punk-inspired sound akin to bands like Joy Division and The Cure. 
the band incorporates more elements of what can be described as their signature sound. Chorus guitars, cleverly written lyrics, a more prominent bass, and greater contrast with the drums. It's everything one would want in a police album and more. Plus, songs like Message in a Bottle, my favorite song from the album, and Walking on the Moon really showcase the signature sound in the best possible way. It's not to say that the other song hungs do, but these two stand out particularly well, and I feel like I could find myself listening to them more than, say, Does Everyone Stare, an incredibly repetitive song written and sung entirely by Stuart Copeland that I find myself skipping every time I listen to this album. Please don't let the other members of the band sing besides staying. None of the songs sung by Andy Summers or Stuart Copeland are good besides on any other day. But other than that, there's nothing else I can say about this album, and I give it a 3.5 out of 5. Now, from here on out is where we get to the good stuff. The band's third effort, Zenyatta Mandata, released in 1980, was my favorite album by then for a long time, and this is where I think the band's ever-changing sound is fully realized. Songs like the opener, Don't Stand So Close to Me, and the earworm, Da Do Do Do, Da 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 Da, represent some of the more clever songwriting that dominate much of the police's catalog. These are some of my favorite songs by them, but there are also a lot more noteworthy songs here with subject matter and instrumentation. Driven to Tears and Bombs Away, for instance, delve into some really political themes, with the former being about class division and poverty, and the latter about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Meanwhile, the instrumental pieces Behind My Camel and The Other Way of Stopping, written respectively by Summers and Copeland, showcase the instrumental prowess of the band and how they function as a unit, while also showcasing Summers' signature Spanish and Arabic-influenced chorus guitar in the former, and Copeland's rhythmic reggae-inspired driving in the latter. And with some slight hiccups like voices inside my head, Zenyatta Mandata represents the police at the height of their career and is easily worthy of a 4 out of 5. But now is where we get to the really good stuff. The band's fourth album, 1981's Ghost in the Machine, currently stands as my favorite album by the group. And yes, this is mainly because it has my favorite song by them overall, Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic. But that's besides the point. Every Little Thing is a fantastic song overall, but there's just so much else to speak of about this album as it represents the band's further foray into new wave. Here we get an expanded instrumental section, including synths characteristic of the 80s on songs like Spirits in the Material World, Invisible Sun, and Secret Journey, as well as a horn section that is most prominent on songs like the reggae cover Demolition Man, The Environmentalist One World, Not Three, and the ska-inspired Rehumanize Yourself. There is also a lot of songs on this album with political undertones. Besides the aforementioned One World, Invisible Sun talks about the effects of war on impoverished nations, and Spirits in the Material World delves extensively into existentialism. I could rave more about this album, but I would run out of time, so I would say that this album is basically perfect and easily the best album of the band's career. Five out of five. That leaves one more album to review. The Mixed Bag, that is the band's fifth and final album, 1982 Synchronicity. Now let me just get something out of the way. Every Breath You Take is easily the band's most overrated song. Yes, it's their biggest hit, but let me just say that it's a song that gives me a generally creepy vibe. To put it bluntly, this is a song about a stalker and it really hasn't aged well. Also, I don't want to go into this further, but yes, Mother is easily the band's worst song. It literally constitutes of nothing but Andy Summers yelling about how paranoid he is about his mother, interfering with every date he goes on, and it's laughably terrible. 
But with those out of the way, I didn't expect to find myself liking this album as much as I did. I admit that it's their most sonically diverse album, with different instruments being incorporated into the band's sound, like the steel drum on Wrapped Around Your Finger, and the hand drums and African flute on Walking in Your Footsteps. The blues-inspired closer, Murder by Numbers, even features a return to the stripped-down sound of the band's debut with a, a lot of finesse. In addition, songs like Synchronicity 2, inspired by Carl Jung's philosophy of synchronicity, and my favorite song from the album, King of Pain, about Sting's separation from his wife and his depression afterwards, really touch on philosophy and existentialism even more than Ghost in the Machine did. So while I can say that this album isn't perfect, Synchronicity is a very fitting swan song for a band that has done a lot with their sound over the years, and I would say it's a word of a 3.5 out of 5. Overall, this experience has made me think more about the police critically and in terms of being one of the most interesting bands in rock music. Their capacity to grow and experiment with each of their albums with creative instrumentation and mature songwriting hasn't always worked to their advantage, but whenever it's good, it's really good. Statistically, I would say that they're a 7.6 out of 10, but that ultimately rounds up to an 8, so I can say that yes, the police are a great band and definitely worthy of a listen. You don't have to like all of their songs, but trust me, the listening experience is very worthwhile. You're listening to WOBC Oberlin, 91.5 FM, Oberlin College, and Community Radio. This has been The Weekly. All previously aired episodes of The Weekly are publicly available online. You can listen to them at anchor.fm forward slash the weekly.